Welcome back to Homestuck Made This World, a show about the critical analysis and contextualization of the webcomic Homestuck. I'm Michael, and with me is my co-host, Cameron. Yep. Going going through the Resident Evil door. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not, not a thing that people really talk about when that uh, panel drops, which I thought was weird. No one talks about how in the middle of Homestuck, there's just randomly a Resident Evil door that the the viewer character walks through. Yeah, I, I certainly I think like someone in the fandom made this observation. But like what was notable to me is that in the Something Awful thread, nobody uh, was like, oh, man, that's that's the Resident Evil door. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I'm wondering if it's, like, so obvious that no one thought they had to make that observation, but uh, mm -hmm. it, it, it it surprised me. It's also not it's something... A, it's a Venn diagram that's too complete. <laughs> uh, absolutely different circles, and I'm the only person who has noticed it at this point. People who enjoy Homestuck <laughs> and people who enjoy Resident Evil, there's no overlap, and I'm the first person in history. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a well-known fact that people who read Homestuck are too afraid of zombies. It's true. Yeah. No, they're too brave. They don't understand. <laughs> they're they're willing to uh to to experience the like unalloyed teen angst written by a thirty five year old adult, <laughs> and and uh you know it is only with that kind of bravery that one would completely obliterate something so childish as a video game about zombies. <laughs> In a haunted manner, get real. What about what about trolls and and human teens and their feelings for one another? That's real shit. That's scary. I I God, I wish I wish that this is the turn that history had taken. Is that for some reason, like the Homestuck fandom became extremely militant against like zombies and like zombie media, and they're like, you're all children, like like harassment campaigns against like Walking Dead fans. Oh, I mean, if you told me it happened, I'd be like, all right, well, I guess I guess that occurred in the past. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it's it's kind of interesting because this time period. So we're what in 20, 2010 right now, 2011, 2011. We go uh, th this set of reading goes from uh, sort of the mid ish to the end of February 2011 to the middle of uh, May 2011. Oh, that makes sense because we had the holiday bonus content mm -hmm. not not very long ago, so that makes a lot of sense. But uh, you know, I we're almost at the point. Twenty eleven is almost the point of like militant online rejection of Epic Bacon mm -hmm. <laughs> and and Chuck Norris. Right? Yeah. We are we are in the waning days of uh, of those phenomena. And if you told me that zombies also that there was a strong contingent of Homestuck fans that hated zombies. <laughs> And, uh, you know, got serious about it, I'd have to say, okay. <laughs> I guess, yeah, it would be believable. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess if uh, we want to get started, I can I can do the summary, because it's uh, one hell of a summary this time. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> Hope you're prepared to drink, Cameron. Something to... I did. I got, I got some coffee. Yeah, maybe. I always have. I, I get through about half a cup of coffee every time you do one of these summaries. <laughs> like a coffee, a, a crossword puzzle. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think, oh, before we do the episode, I think, ah, maybe I should drink, you know, a little bit more coffee. I should get up a little bit earlier. And then I think, nah, we got a summary. This is a Homestuck <laughs> episode. I got plenty of time to warm up at the top here. Okay. <clears throat> here we go. 
Following the murder of Mom and Dad, Jack Noir immediately begins to accessorize, complementing the sunglasses he stole from Bro with a hat, a beautiful scarf, a pipe, and more, before finally realizing how ridiculous he looks and discarding all of his trophies. All except for one, Lil Cal, whom Jack has developed an especial fondness for. He turns his mind back to destruction and murder, but is distressed by his overwhelming intrusive thoughts about dog treats. That's not the only Beck-derived quality he now has and we learn that earlier Jack found Jade asleep, and while he desired to murder her, his good dog loyalty stopped him. Now he calls up the draconian dignitary to put out a hit on Jade. Dee Dee complies by assigning the job to the courtyard droll, who is currently wandering the battlefield with Liv Tyler the Cyber Bunny. Jack reflects on how boring life as a destructive demigod is, and we flash forward into the future, where Jack has just been frozen by the resurrected Aradia's time powers. Being frozen is also boring, it turns out, but Aradia uses the temporarily immobile Jack as a portal directly to the green sun, which burns somewhere in the depths of the furthest ring. From here, she wanders into a dream bubble, reliving the memory of one of the many Aradia bots who fought Jack when he first entered the troll session. Jack attacked the Aradia bot by throwing Lil Cal at her, after which she was knocked by a meteor into a Skyan defense portal and was blown to bits on the surface of Alternia. It turns out, this happened just outside Aradia's hive, back before Vriska killed her, and investigating this explosion is how Aradia originally discovered the second set of frog ruins from which she and Sullux salvaged the code of the game. In the impact crater, Aradia also found John's dad's wallet, speckled with ominous drops of blood, as well as the remains of Lil Cal. Aradia is joined by her alternate self, the Aradia bot who died in the impact, as well as a sleeping Solix, Jade, and Kanaya, and she guides them through their disparate memories to reconstruct an unusual origin story. What happened was this. The remains of Lil Cal were given to Kanaya, who stitched him back together and gave him a snazzy green suit before forgetting about him, because who cares about creepy puppets? Meanwhile, after Vriska paralyzed Tavros, each troll injured in the resulting blood feud repressed a traumatic memory where they wrote a certain word on their bedroom walls, much like Rose wrote the meow code on her room's walls, which eventually was used to create Beck. So it was that together Tavros, Aradia, Vriska, and Terezi wrote the phrase tick-tock, like the sound of a clock, break, like the opening shot of a game of pool, and heads, like the thing you talk out of. The Aradia bot chimes in to add that there was another part of the code from an alternate timeline, where she originated. There, Gamzee snapped before the trolls completed the game, killing all of his friends and writing the final part of the message in their blood. Honk, honk, like the sound of a clown horn. These words were recorded in the Trolls' role-playing guidebooks and, from the alternate timeline, Karkat's coding handbook, before being gathered by the Troll Session's Black Queen, who used them as part of the ectobiological cloning process, along with Kanaya's restored little Cal and Vriska's magic cue ball, to create their Session's first guardian, 
Doc Scratch. The story now switches focus to Scratch, who, because he cannot be controlled like the other characters, briefly takes over the duties of narration. He addresses the reader directly, assuring us that he will be an excellent host. He is currently waiting the arrival of another very special guest. This turns out to be none other than Jack Noir, of course by which I mean Spade Slick, uh, the Jack Noir of the Trolls session, who's now got a robot arm and an eye patch since we last saw him at the end of the intermission. He tries to beat up Scratch, apparently thinking he is Lord English, but Scratch easily distracts him with a candy dish of licorice Scotty dogs before taking time to have a chat with Rose. In a long and ponderous conversation between two of the wordiest characters in the comic, during which Scratch reveals himself to be a rather creepy guy when it comes to talking to young girls on the internet, we learn some intriguing information. First, the Scratch, not the character, but the thing that's going to happen, must be initiated by, surprise surprise, scratching the giant record turntable on Dave's planet. This will in fact reset the session entirely, both inside and outside the game. Doc Scratch explains that the kids will have led different lives and have no memory of their past actions. Effectively, their current selves will be obliterated, unless they find some means of preservation. On that note, Scratch also explains how the god-tier powers John has acquired bestow the power of conditional immortality, meaning that god-tier players of the game cannot die unless they do so in circumstances that are exceedingly self-sacrificing and heroic, or exceedingly depraved and therefore justified. Scratch also reminds Rose that destroying the Green Sun would, in addition to depowering Jack, kill Scratch himself, and in the process release his master, Lord English, who whom he tells us is a very evil man. Rose questions whether this, then, is the best plan for taking out Jack, which Scratch says is rather beside the point. The destruction of the sun would kill Scratch and happen to weaken Jack at the same time. But this is not the only way for Scratch to die, and indeed, due to his time travel abilities, Lord English is effectively already here. It turns out Rose has acquired Jade's magic cue ball, and Scratch urges her to use her seer of light powers to read it for clues as to what she should do next. It tells her to answer Jade, who's been trying to message her. Thus, Rose discovers her mom has been murdered by Jack Moore. Rose hungers for revenge and wonders if this is why the Outer Gods have imbued her with dark magic, but Jade is not so sure they can be trusted. Again, on Scratch's advice, Rose asks the cue ball. This time, the answer is incomprehensibly eldritch and Rose is infused with even more nefarious magic, causing the monitor blackout Kanaya has observed previously. Having gone completely grimdark, Rose blasts off to fight Jack. The big man, aka Andrew Hussey, calls for a timeout, and through a series of Sweetbro and Hella Jeff-style panels acknowledges that, by now, the reader must be anxious about all of these self-insert shenanigans. It seems inevitable that if Hussey keeps showing up like this, they must eventually interact directly with the story, and wouldn't that be really stupid? But Hussey assures us that they know what they're doing, and in the end, when the time comes for direct involvement with the narrative, they promise their influence will be so precise and minuscule that it can be measured in the span of one yard. Meanwhile, John finds the tumor at the center of the battlefield. 
It's a massive spiked bomb with a clock ticking down from 10 hours and 25 minutes. John pops the bomb into Dad's wallet and returns to the surface, where he meets up with WV and Liv Tyler, who's returned with CD in tow. Liv provides a note from Jade's pen pal, who explains that he packed the bunny with powerful in-game weapons. Liv has lost most of them, unfortunately, but John manages to recover the one meant for him, the Warhammer of Zillihu. John then decides to look for his dad some more, but first he commandeers a flying battleship and hands over his wallet to WV, ordering him, Liv Tyler, and CD to sail to Purpo to deliver the tumor to Rose's dream self. The little party sets off and John's attention is caught by the black clouds descending on a nearby castle as Grimdark Rose arrives to fight Jack. Rose explores the castle, following Jack's trail of slaughter, and learning bits and pieces of how the prospicions of the game have mythologized the arrival of their heroes and, apparently, their inevitable failure. She eventually finds John, but one consequence of being grimdark is you cannot speak except for Eldritch Snarling, and so she leads him around the castle to the corpses of their parents, where Jack Noir is waiting for them. Upset by his father's death, John prepares for battle along with Rose. Jack immediately teleports behind John and stabs him through the chest, killing him. In a rage, Rose blows up the castle. On Lowas, Dave investigates the scene of his bro's death, where he experiences a lot of ambivalent feelings. Terezi messages him to explain how she is also currently on the trail of a murderer and seeking justice, concepts Dave finds himself weirdly enthusiastic about, since on Future Earth, the Authority Regulator is at that moment using a terminal to tell him to be, while also making preparations to blow up all the other exile stations. On the meteor, Terezi discovers Nepeta's body and falls for the nearby evidence Gamzee has planted to frame Vriska. She sets out to find her adversary, and the second year and the first disc of Homestuck ends. The second disc of Homestuck, however, is missing. Terezi keeps going anyway and falls through a trap door into a strange room with a record player, some treasure chests, a swiftly moving juggalo shadow, and Lil Cal in his awesome green suit. These last two things don't seem very important, so pressing is the need to bring Vriska to justice. Terezi finds Homestuck's second disc near the record player and attempts to play it because she doesn't know what CDs are, and thus ends up scratching the disc. In the treasure chests, she finds her old role-playing outfit and her favorite dragon plush. On a page of Mindfang's journal, Gamzee has faked a message from Vriska telling Terezi to meet her for a showdown on the roof. Terezi dons her old roleplay garb and sets out as we learn more about the troll ancestors. What happened was this. Eventually, Mindfang, Vriska's ancestor, was captured by the Legislacerator Redglare, Terezi's ancestor, who used her dragon companion to decimate Mindfang's pirate fleet. In the battle, Mindfang lost an arm and an eye. At the trial, however, she used her mind control powers to persuade the court to turn against and execute Red Glare. Now on the run, Mindfang sought out the machinist Darklear, Equius's ancestor, who was exiled for some past matter where he rose up against the Highbloods in favor of an unnamed woman. In exchange for her keeping his location secret, Darklear builds Mindfang a new arm and watches over one of her treasures, a magic cue ball that Mindfang stole from Doc Scratch. The cue ball has already told Mindfang how she will die, at the hands of her future lover, the summoner, Tavros's ancestor, who is destined to lead an unsuccessful rebellion against the Alternian Empress. Throughout all of this, the panels of the comic become progressively degraded and glitchy as playing with a scratched disc takes its toll.
Back in the present, Terezi finds and confronts Vriska, who informs her Gamzee has been committing most of the murders. However, Vriska now intends to go off and face Jack Noir alone. Thanks to her seer of mind powers, Terezi knows this will lead Jack back to the meteor, where he will kill everyone. Terezi proposes a wager. She will flip her coin, and depending on the result, Vriska will either stay or she will go. Vriska agrees, confident that her luck manipulation powers will ensure that the coin lands favorably for her and the increasing glitchiness of the game means the coin hangs mid-flip. Homestuck is rendered totally unplayable unless we can find someone who could doctor a scratched disc. Luckily, we do know someone like that, and once more, Doc Scratch returns to the narrative, inviting us back into his apartment. Whew. That all happened. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're we're getting into it now. Like, I guess more into it, more into more stuff. I don't know. Does this feel different to you, Cameron? Yeah, mm-hmm. there, we we've gotten another. I I feel like turn mm-hmm. where the two modes that the comic has oscillated between of like straight up soap opera. Mm-hmm. And uh, being one of them, the most recent one. And then the uh, previous one of like Little Kid Goofery. Mm-hmm. They are perfectly melded at this point. You know, Little Kid Goofery playing the game. Mm-hmm. Those two things are melded nearly perfectly here. And uh, it, John is back to being original John, mm-hmm. which is really weird. Like, I. I Something that is so uh, astonishing to me, or, or just really interesting, I guess, is that uh, Hussey seems so good at writing and capturing character voice, but it does seem like over the length of the project, uh, Hussey has, I, I don't know, I don't know if it. I really can't tell, I guess, I'm trying to make a decision in my head, I can't tell if it is when Hussey drops a character for a long time, do they have a problem getting back into that character? That could be one explanation. Mm. The other explanation is that Hussey is very good at maintaining voice while changing some aspects of a character. And so then the character is just whatever they need to be at any given moment. Mm-hmm. One of those two things is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because John John initially, you know, is is my beautiful golden boy. Mm-hmm. And then you go and then uh, you know, there, we have this big shift where he's like kind of way more naive. And now he's back to being original John, but with kind of the voice of Jade, especially mm. in the walk around with Terezi. Oh, you mean uh, the walk around with Rose? The walk around with Rose. Yeah. Sorry, I put uh, yeah. Terezi's the fake walk around. Yes, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, uh, the walk around uh, and pseudo walk arounds blur together. But yeah, the walk around with Rose when Rose goes down and gets him uh, and all that stuff. Uh, what do you mean he has the voice um, of Jade? I'm sorry. What do you mean he has the voice of Jade? Just like what I think I, I have an idea, you, but uh Well, there's this maneuver like when he um you know, they're coming up from that basement or inside the temple or where yeah, I guess inside the interior of that temple. And uh he's constantly like being like uh, hey Rose, <laughs> I I I know that whatever uh, you know, I, it's just so awkward, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Right? Like I can't believe there's something that's like uh, apologetic yet cheerful about him. Mhm. Um, which is not the like little scampy boy that we used to have mm-hmm. um, necessarily, right? But but the way he's making decisions seem like original. 
um, uh, uh, John to me, the way that he is deeply in love with uh, the hammer of Zillyhoo. Yes, that seems like original John <laughs> to me. Um, which is all to say, you know, the a thing that is. We've talked about this a million times, right? It seems like the Homestuck fandom, and due to the object itself and the way it encourages you to read it, and presumably this gets narrativized at some point. I mean, it's got to be. But there is a um, understanding of Homestuck being everything all at once. Mm-hmm. And what 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 this method of our show really identifies by really breaking it up into chunks and thinking about them and giving us a little bit of time to think about them in between is that there's some significant shifts and moves that are happening in presentation in character voice, in the way that these characters interact with one another, that I think that if you were sitting and reading like 2,000 pages in a day, mm-hmm. the granularity there might not, you know, it might not be as uh, apparent. Mm-hmm. Or if you were thinking about it through a fan community or thinking about it uh, in terms of its like wiki ability, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which I know is a, a big chunk now for the Homestuck fandom of like the way that people engage with this. Mm-hmm. Um, because you might need that just to understand what's going on. Um, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about the Aradia stuff here, which I kind of understand, but but it also seems like I don't really need to understand it. So um, that would be a no- that's another thing that that I think that helps the comic right now, or really puts in a, in a particular place, is that it's very clear at this point that you don't need to know anything. <laughs> that that the thing that drives the comic is character relationships. Mm-hmm. And as long as you can have them in your head, someone will explain the plot at some point. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't get any particular you know, group of 10 panels, someone will appear to painfully, in an extremely explicit detail, explain the plot to you. <laughs> um, it is actually not a confusing comic. Yeah. If you're just willing to wait. Right. Yeah. And weirdly enough, maybe the weight will have a bunch of retcons in it that like <laughs> re-explain it to you, which is fine. It meant that the thing you experienced the first time didn't matter anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. So, so that's something I guess that's really notable here. And uh, uh, you know, it's it's a we you know we talked about this all the way back at the beginning of the show, but you know the influences that are in the culture at the time, and it's a lot like Lost in that way. Mm-hmm. Like, like Lost did do uh, this really interesting job of, uh, you know, ooh, all these mysteries, all these weird things, all they're going on. And then at the end of a season or in the last two or three, uh, you know, episodes of a season, and I'm thinking like seasons three, four, five, you know, especially later in the series, um, you're just going to have characters sit there and like monologue or dialogue with one another and explain what is going on. Now, that might not be, they might not provide an explanation that you find uh, empowering or good mm-hmm. <laughs> and it might be one that it, it implies and uses a bunch of retcons very similar to homestuck in that way right we don't know where that polar bear came from <laughs> ever i don't think we ever find that out it does because it doesn't matter to the thing and the thing that drives that show even if you don't really understand uh any individual kind of twist and turn in the big meta plot is that you know who these characters are and how they interact with one another and things like that mm-hmm. so uh, and, and, you know, you care about them and how they, you know, Desmond being in the hatch and all that stuff. Right. So, uh, I, I, I will say that it seems like, uh, this is still really in conversation with its other kind of reference materials or the other things that are kind of, um, in the cultural, you know, moment, mm-hmm. you know, in the moment that immediately precedes it, I'm really feeling the never ending story here Yeah. in a big way. Mm-hmm. It feels like we are at the point. I mean, starting with uh, Jack Noir 
has murdered everyone, and he's unhappy because this might be the rest of his life. Yeah. <laughs> or this might be eternity. That That's the back half of the never-ending story. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, being a bored demigod. Yeah, oh, I guess I won. Shit. <laughs> like, that. that's the whole, that's the engine that drives the other side of the never-ending story, right? That maybe some stories are meant to end, and when a story keeps going, that, that turns into a problem. And I have a feeling, again, I don't, I don't really know this, other than what you've kind of said, which is that the never-ending story is structurally, you know, related to Homestuck. I feel like this might happen two or three more times. <laughs> um because because I know that we're only at the halfway mark of Homestuck. Yeah. So it, it has to keep going. But but I have a feeling that we might see more kind of traditional narrative pinch points appear. Mm-hmm. And the the driver of action will be, oh, my God, the thing keeps going, right? Like, I, I, we did not predict that this would keep going. I mean, that's already kind of happened a little bit with the troll session and what happened with the scratch at the end of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, you know, I've, I've got my, got my eye out for another one of those, but I thought that was really interesting. Um, and yeah, I guess we can talk about whatever you want to talk about, but those are, those are my big things right now of like character voice, really interesting. Doesn't really matter. Like plot seems to, uh, matter only when it appears. Mm-hmm. And for the rest of the time, you can just see how characters are interacting with one another. Those are my big kind of things at this point in the comic. Yeah. I will say I'm enjoying it more mm-hmm. than I have probably over the last four episodes or so hmm. partisans yeah we're we're uh we're angling to some stuff uh that is going to be like s- some of michael's high points for homestuck uh Ooh. yeah we're 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 on track for that um this is some of my favorite like we're we're in kind of the run of some of my favorite material in the comic uh and some of that has to do with the the kind of profusion of the meta elements um, which I know is not necessarily your favorite thing, but these are the things that are very interesting to me and were very interesting to me while I was reading. Uh, and sort mm-hmm. of uh, the way that the the meta elements start coming to the fore in a way with like Doc Scratch sort of directly addressing mm-hmm. uh, the reader, um, the like Terezi having to find like the second disc of Homestuck uh, and then like the, the disc being scratched. And so it's like glitchy and like we don't get to see, for instance, there's this flash uh, that the, the sort of ending flash where Terezi and Vriska have their confrontation where they go through this whole conversation about like what's going on and, and like what their situation is and, and Terezi kind of makes her proposal. But that is uh, all like uh, in, in, there are parts of that that are like incoherent. Uh, they're like glitched over like we're seeing other panels like getting like superimposed over things all sort of for the the aesthetic of. Uh, like you are playing a thing that is breaking, right? The machine that you're looking at mm-hmm. is is uh, compromised in some way. Uh, and this whole thing, right? The whole enterprise uh, is is maybe starting to burst at the seams a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I will say just to, to uh, follow up on something you just said, it's not that I, I find the uh, meta things like bad necessarily. Uh, but but what's interesting to me is the way, or, or the thing that I find maybe frustrating, I guess, mm-hmm. is that they just create like an additional layer of bounds, mm-hmm. and they're really didactic about how we're supposed to engage with Homestuck. Mm-hmm. Like, any time that we get a meta move, it is a meta move that is... Uh, I, it always feels foreclosed in this comic, and, and I'm very willing to like have that augmented in my mind or you know whatever I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes i would rather see this happen than like you know whatever other thing would be the alternative right but 
it, it seems like in this comic, we move meta only to fold it back into the structure of the non-meta, mm-hmm. right? So we never went we never went meta to begin with, I guess is what I'm saying, right? We just basically got another kind of quadrant to think about as far as plot and character manipulation. We're seeing the exact same in this piece with Doc Scratch, yes. right? Like there's a meta move, he's talking to the audience, but he's talking to all the characters and really the vast majority of what he's doing is being extremely creepy. He's just another character. Um, he is part of the like, process of the game and yet he really does not have any function other than just to be another kooky character and a cast of kooky characters like for me the the um the meta move has yet to open something up in a truly meta way Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm very open to that, right? I mean, you know, we've talked about this on a bunch of different shows, but the Michael Weehunt story about the the found footage film is probably one of my favorite short stories I've ever yes. read, right? And precisely because it takes the meta move and fully does the thing, yes. right? Like it, the meta move is wholly applied and worked through. I think that's very similar to the way that you like uh, House of Leaves as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like it it pushes the whole apparatus as far as it can go. Um, and so I, I'm really hoping, and especially as you're saying, since there is this kind of profusion of meta elements, especially in the reading for today uh, or for this partisode, I, re- I hope that it keeps going, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, you know, j- this is pure speculation. I really don't know. And it's based on something that we kind of talked about when he appeared originally. But if at the end of the day, the prime villain is Lord English, a.k.a our capability to use language to set the like precepts of what will exist in the world. That will be very disappointing to me. (laughs) Right. Like if it, if if it is just like at the end of the day, Homestuck becomes a story that is about like uh, the primacy of the capturing apparatus of language over like human emotion and experience and affect. Mm -hmm. You know, if those become like the two Manichaean poles, right, right, right there's right. like, like true human experience, and then the thing that eats human experience and processes it into communicable language, right, right. I will not be very excited about that. That will be very disappointing, right, right. So you you would not be excited if this ended up being about like the fundamental horror of like the mediated experience, <laughs> right? No, I I wouldn't, because and, but and I'm worried about that because that does come up so often, right? Mm-hmm. It's like. Um, there, there's so much focus in this comic about like the medium through which you interact with the thing is ultimately very important. I mean, we saw it here. We saw Dave being like piloted by, um, I'm forgetting the character. AR. Uh, I'm sorry. AR. Oh yeah. AR. That's right. Because he has a rifle. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, the, you know, so I, I'm just, I'm a little bit worried at this point about that, but I thought Doc Scratch was interesting. Anyway, that was sorry. That was a long clarification of uh, of something because I think that uh, unfortunately it's going to become really important here. So uh, <laughs> I think you were going to say something else. Oh, I, I just you know uh, I I knew that uh, like the meta elements were what were really interesting to me as I was reading because for me it was always this. Th- this is where our our differences in experience I think really come to the fore because for you Homestuck is kind of like totally closed down, like it's a, mm-hmm, it's a finished yeah. object. And what is fascinating about Doc Scratch in the moment of reading serially, um, and like this, this is when I say that, like, for me, I felt like the comic changing. It wasn't just like, oh, there's these like meta elements. Um, these meta elements have a particularly uh, ominous uh, feeling to them uh, serially, or they did, uh, even though they are kind of very goofy and silly. And some of this is because like 
uh, Doc Scratch is explicitly processing like reader response, like what was being said in the forum threads. And like, I'm I'm noticing this historically and being like, this is really interesting. So like on page 3628, this is during the big long conversation with Rose, um, where he's explaining uh, everything like he's he's explaining how they're going to start the scratch and all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And Rose says, uh, what will the one who does it, that is to say, completes the scratch, um, have to do, I should let them know. And then Scratch replies, he will have to scratch the surface of the plateau across its full diameter. She says, I see. This terminology can be very literal sometimes. Scratch replies, you will require a certain needle to create a breach in the surface that will be adequate. Rose says, I have needles. He says, your needles won't suffice. She says, then where do I get ones that will? And he says, again, you won't. This task is out of your hands. The needles must be acquired from the denizen of the Witch of Space. Uh, So Jade's denizen. Uh, Her quills are very large and potent. They will be able to cause the scratch. Rose says, this really seems more elaborate than you led me to believe. And he says, I didn't lead you to believe anything. I told you to find the construct and await advisement on the scratch. The plans you were making were based on assumptions and fabrications of your imagination. You were writing more stories, such much like those about your false magical men. Uh, And she says, I wish uh, what I'd written in my private journals could be confined to your dark spots, the things he doesn't know. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway, right, so this is Scratch's thing, right? Scratch says he never lies. Uh, Like, that's one of his deals. And so whenever anyone has a misapprehension of what Scratch is saying, he's like, I didn't tell you that. I told you something. And then you made an assumption with kind of your interpretation of what I said. Um, Which, you know, lends some weight to to your anxiety, Cameron, about uh, the fundamental evil of language being what uh, awaits us at the end of this story. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, like, this is uh, the way that Hussey responds on the form spring to, like, people who are writing in being like, well, why didn't this thing happen? Or I thought it was going to be like this. Why didn't this happen? Um, it's like Scratch here is very, like, distinctly echoing Hussey saying, you came up with a theory about where this story was going to go. That was never where it was going to go. And now you are angry at me for invalidating something that like you made up totally on your own, right? This theory of where the, what the story was going to be based on like your own kind of predilections and apprehensions of it. Uh, And you're taking that out on me personally now, right? Even though like I was doing like, I never made you believe that I never led you to think this, that, or the other. Uh, But this is how uh, like these interactions are kind of going on the form spring. Um, And like, I noticed that, right? It's very interesting to me to think about like, what does it mean that like this character in this comic is chastising the other characters in the comic in language that is also being used to kind of like correct the readers outside the comic by the author. Yeah, there is a uh, maybe this is a good place to talk about this. Uh, you know, there's been a few times in the in the Discord and uh, on Twitter where basically we've been asked in, in various forms like, when do you take Hussey seriously, mm-hmm. and when do you dismiss out of hand what Hussey is saying, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, especially in the author commentary, yes, right. Uh, and. Uh, you, you and I had this conversation of like, oh yeah, we we like in 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 like our gut or in our like training have like a whole process for thinking through this. Mm-hmm. Like, when do you take seriously the word of someone who is part of a 
uh, creative apparatus and when you just not really take it too seriously. And one of the things you and I were talking about uh, is repetition, mm-hmm. you know, and that would be the primary thing, which is uh, when you see someone saying, someone who is involved in creating something, say something repeatedly, you start to think, oh, well, okay, well, this is, there's two th- one of two things going on here. One, they are transparent and they're just telling you what's going on, mm-hmm. you know, or what they believe is going on. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm not into psychoanalysis, but I do believe often people will tell you about stuff that they're thinking about, even if they're intending not to, you know, I don't think you need psychoanalysis for that. The other one is that they are presenting a characterization of themselves that is asking you to interpret their object in a particular way. Mm -hmm. Right. So for example, uh, you know, uh, uh, a person who is famous for doing this is the film director, the, the kind of extreme filmmaker, Lars von Trier. Mm Mm-hmm. Lars von Trier is uh, a character uh, who, I mean, he's got a lot of issues as well, but he is fundamentally someone who, when he is in front of the press for 15, 20 years, would say the most offensive things possible Mm -hmm. on purpose to generate press. That that was the tactic, right? Mm -hmm. And so you also have to think, you know, I've, I've done a lot of writing on Lars von Trier, a lot of study of Lars von Trier, especially in graduate school. And so when you look at the films, you have to think, okay, he is someone who is performing this kind of character of himself that's at least partially real, but definitely, you know, outsized in public. How is that appearing, you know, in the extremity of the film? And how do we then think extremity in the film, right? And there's this kind of repetitiveness across the artistic work. The artistic work does not stop when the film is over. Mm-hmm. Right. For, for someone like Lars von Trier. Um, and so that's one form of repetition, right? A, a kind of resonance that happens between the public persona of the creator and the public work itself. Another form of repetition is just textual repetition, right? Uh, and exactly like you're saying, right? When a form of argument appears uh, in uh, the relation, you know, in, in statements by the uh, creator or whatever, and then that form of argument, right, this kind of shape of the way the explanation functions, when that goes into the voice of a character, mm-hmm. you you start perking up, right? You you start paying attention. Now, whether that is something we are intended to take seriously, who knows, right? But it becomes very difficult not to take that seriously or not to focus in on it precisely because that form is being repeated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, at the end of the day, a work is a human being putting things together mm-hmm. and that human being exists in the world and says things and does things and things like that. And so when there are resonances across the work itself, you know, across the length of the work, when people are saying similar things uh, or characters are saying similar things or similar themes appear or similar arguments appear, you start noticing that repetition inside the work. And then when that happens outside the work, you start noticing that repetition. And so for the most part, right, when there are explanations that do not resonate with what is happening on the page, I think we tend to be pretty dismissive of that, mm-hmm. right? So for example, uh, Hussey's explanations of race, mm-hmm. they don't seem very convincing to me because they don't really resonate with what I'm actually reading. Mm-hmm. As opposed to uh, what you're saying, the way that Hussey talks uh, about the work in the form spring is being put into the mouth of a character. Yes. In the thing, mm-hmm. right? And so, so you know, if you're thinking about how do we evaluate, because I think this is a real and serious question, and, you know, I'm not, I, I don't want to dismiss that out of hand, that, you know, it is sometimes a little bit weird the way that we oscillate back and forth with our relationship to Hussey. And th- that purely has to do with, um, in, in some ways, our disciplinary training, I would say, 
of, of I, you know, I went to graduate school for a long time. And a thing that you're taught to do is to recognize these kinds of resonances and to read them in particular ways. And then all, you know, the flip side to recognize when disjunctures happen, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the reading that we have for today, and this has happened a few times, but the reading that we have for today is chock full of Doc Scratch um, uh, saying that the way that we understand stories as human beings, the way that you and I, mm -hmm. you know, Michael, and the way that you, human being in the world who is listening to this, the way that we understand stories is insufficient for understanding Homestuck. Yes. Uh, the, the the events, the phenomenal events that are happening to these characters in their like fictional world, in the diegesis, we would say. Mm -hmm. And because our storytelling and our story, our storytelling methods and the ways that we read stories are wrong, we should just sit tight and pay attention to what's happening and don't try to put our assumptions on the story. Mm -hmm. Right. This is the exact same that's happened. Same thing that happened a while back with with Alternia. Right. Everything that you think about what these teens do is wrong <laughs> because it's opposite worlds. Yes. <laughs> and all the good stuff is bad and all the bad stuff is good. Now, so, okay, fine. Like, I, I'm willing to accept that. I'm willing to accept that within the story, there's a different rule set than the one, um, you know, that that I come into it with my presuppositions. This this is a big part of, like, people um, talking with me about my uh, interpretation of what Terezi was saying. Yes. Right? A, a few parts of it ago. That... I was bringing an external reading onto the story that the internally in the story, what Terezi is saying is true, right? It's the description of metaphysics within the fiction, which is totally fine. I think that is a very valid way of responding uh, to what I said. But the issue that I run into, right? I got I to gotta have a but here the, to maybe explain a little bit of the way that we engage with this, or at least the way that I engage with this, is that in the Alternia uh, example, Everything is opposite world until it's not opposite world, and that is uh, relatively uh, random, mm -hmm. it seems. Uh, they're totally opposite except the fact that they are exactly like human teenagers and are perfectly able to, within a very short amount of time, you know, within one conversation, be able to meld perfectly with human teenagers in their, like, melodrama. Mm -hmm. And so opposite world until it's inconvenient for the story. Uh, I am I am interested in <laughs> the uh, what what if we run into a similar moment with Doc Scratch's kind of meta statements about the way that you and I or the way that human beings who read Homestuck are engaging with the story, which is that uh, uh, and, and uh, sorry, one one thing, both things are happening with Doc Scratch. Doc Scratch is clearly talking to us, the audience. Mm -hmm with all of this direct address that happens and also talking to Rose. Yes. So it's a dual, it's a dual conversation happening. I want to make, want to make that clear. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I'm curious if that happens here, right? Is it a story that doesn't function the way that other stories do? And our puny human minds can't understand that until it is one. Or uh, does, do, is this going to truly require me to like throw out everything I know about the way that language structures, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm running back down the same rabbit hole. Yeah. Again. But anyway, this is all to say to to give a little bit of an explanation about the way that 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 I I can only say for me, but I think some of this is at least shared by you, Michael. Uh, the way that I'm engaging with the kind of author commentaries and the text itself, and this is something I, that I've said quite a few times on the Discord, but maybe not in the show. Uh, there seems to be no idea that Andrew Hussey has about this comic that will not be narrativized into the comic. Yeah. <laughs> right? It get, It's all text, mm -hmm. eventually, mm -hmm. somewhere. 
And look, here, let me play let me play the Homestuck fan game. It's everything all at once. <laughs> <laughs> so it was always all text, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm being silly. But sorry, I'm monologuing for a long time, but I feel like that's an important thing to kind of throw down, uh, you know, to make sure that everyone is at least on the same page of understanding where I'm coming from uh, and, uh, uh, you, you know, to, to see what's up. I, I'm very curious about the other meta stuff going on. Yeah, I, I just have a little bit more to say about Doc Scratch uh, mm-hmm. on this point, I think, because... Uh, I, as you say, uh, one of the things I, I think it's good for us to make clear is that, yeah, we, we have disciplinary training. Uh, that means that maybe we take the author commentary in a particular way and we, we look for certain repetitions or resonances. Um, and, you know, one of the things like w- when I first kind of, I think, went deep into the author commentary, it was during like the the first sort of like uh platonic versions of the characters kind of moment right Mm -hmm. it it was that Mm -hmm. kind of talk and the the critique that i was levying there uh to to sort of make it explicit right was that when hussey says that like well you see normally authors uh like are sort of like just sort of influencing their characters like whispering things into their mind or whatever uh you know i you can talk about your work however you want, um, but what was notable for me about that is that Hussey is taking uh, the the situation of Homestuck as a piece of fiction, right? What is happening in the story, and then acting like that is how the story actually works, and then sort of implicitly like folding it out to say this is how all stories work, right? Like that when authors normally influence uh their characters more indirectly uh now i don't mean to say that that's like hussy taking a serious stand uh but i think it's important that when an author is asked about their fiction like how do they conceive of of that relationship or like how do they conceive of their process and i think it's uh important to underscore hussy like at this particular juncture at this particular moment uh you know thinking about these characters uh basically just replicating like the structure of homestuck in order to explain homestuck uh like this is like homestuck uh of uh, to touch on what you were saying uh in some ways might try to uh put forth a theory of fiction that only applies to homestuck but it acts as if that theory of fiction applies to all fiction right mm-hmm. um now that's not always the case. Uh, just to read here from from some of the author commentary uh, from you know book six, this is Hussey talking about Doc Scratch and specifically uh, the idea that, uh, as I've mentioned before, and as is becoming sort of very explicit here, that Doc Scratch is kind of like an alternative author figure, um, particularly in the way that like he takes over the narration and is directly addressing the reader and saying like you know oh here welcome to my apartment blah 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 blah, but then he turns around and also starts directly addressing the characters. Um, and this is kind of in the context of the fact that, uh, as I've as, we, as we've alluded to, Doc Scratch is creepy. Uh, like it, it, the the thing that is put forth here about him is that he is in in kind of his coy omniscience, right? Because he he says that he's a being of kind of like perfect and immaculate knowledge, and any anything he doesn't know gets figured out very quickly because he's so good and smart at at figuring things out. Uh, when he talks to Rose. Uh, he's always very uh, smug and condescending and uh, like complimentary 
of her, but like yeah, he's a big creep. Yeah, in in a really weird backhanded way, and he play he he plays this up, right? He plays up the fact that he is like a, a sort of quote unquote adult man uh, who's mm-hmm. talking to a younger girl on the internet. Um, and he says, you know, oh, think of me, think of me as one of your kindly human uncles, right? And he he says, if you were here, I would give you some candy. And like, obviously, like, this is like all sort of the, the jokiness, right? And in the, the commentary, Hussey talks about how this is important because we just found out he comes from Cal, uh, who is a, a, a jokey little puppet and also creepy. It, mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, Hussey digs down into this. And uh, sort of ruminates, and this is a much longer note than I can uh, read because it's chock full of spoilers for stuff that's going to happen later, but I think it's interesting. Um, Sort of thinking about what it means for Scratch to be kind of this alt-author figure uh, and talks about how uh, the fact that he is an alt-author, right, a sort of like evil mirror version of the author and the fact that he's like creepy to the characters in this way uh, are kind of intentional for Hussey, right? Like he is... Uh, a a sort of evil and bad character, and we know he is a bad character because he is creepy toward young girls and and or about women. Um, and so for Hussey, this becomes a kind of point to start thinking about like the profiles of characters. This is a term that Hussey uses a lot in uh in the book commentary when talking about how the characters were sort of created. Was uh, thinking about personality profiles, right? What are the uh, what is this person's deal? What are their interests? Kind of what are the things that make them tick? There's there's a here being conveyed i think that hussey kind of like almost wrote these characters as bullet points right um but here i think uh it's worth pointing out that even if these are like sort of just uh profiles or like here are these characters like four major things uh there was a choice to make them those things and then there's a choice made in how to like exercise those uh qualities in the comic and so uh Eventually, Hussey starts talking about how all of these things then are ultimately just versions that Hussey has made up, right? Hmm. Like that they're like sort of not just made up, but like uh, different exaggerations of different types of personality traits. So, for instance, here, think of like uh, the creepiness of Doc Scratch um, as compared to the creepiness of Equius as maybe compared to the creepiness of Aridan or something, right? We've got like a series of characters who are all creepy, uh, but all creepy in kind of different ways. And so Hussey thinks, talks about this as, uh, you know, being kind of like different levels of exaggeration or, or focus. Um, and then uh, gets into this point about also uh, Hussey calls them these like personality splinters. Uh, But I've also talked about splinters in a different context, which is that any collection of characters in a story could be viewed as compartmentalized, somewhat exaggerated splinters of the author's total personality. Everything an author is capable of conceiving is recorded through the characters they create and the words and actions they assign to them, which includes good and evil things. If it didn't include such moral polarities, the results wouldn't be too interesting, which is why me saying characters like, and there's a bunch of characters named here, but I'll just say Doc scratch and a few others exist as dark authorial surrogates uh, shouldn't be taken as overtly or overly self-critical lacerations unless you really want to think I suck as bad as they do in which case I'll just say fair enough I'd say these self-examined qualities are just drawn out isolated and inflated both for dramatic effect and also as a critical write-up of those qualities existing within many human beings in general 
which I would like to think is grounded in a creative process involving a certain degree of humility about some of this bullshit. I like all of these characters here, but that doesn't mean uh, I think that their unpleasant qualities are good. It just means that I am harnessing and heightening those qualities for creating strong villainous portraits. If you write stuff, then it's very likely you do this as well. That is, carving up the full potential of your personality and endowing your OCs with the exotic results, including your extremes. The only difference between us is you probably don't have the courage to drag yourself into the story and begin weirdly personalizing many of these decisions, thereby essentially making everything about you literally constantly, and then writing tons of cool huge notes about it in all the later editions. Hmm. So, I mean... There you go, right? Hussey is here talking about, like, the process of creating these characters. They are, like, you know, mm-hmm. fictional kind of uh, uh, little creations. But I think it is really interesting that for Hussey, uh, a, a character is always a part of the author in some way. Which I don't think uh, is—I don't think this is being given necessarily as, like, a rule for understanding fiction or how the creative process works. But I can say that, like, as someone who has written some things— uh, I agree with about half, I agree with what was just said about half the time, maybe, right? Like, sometimes when you're creating characters, it is about taking, like, oh, here's kind of some things that I'm interested in or inclinations I have. What if those things belong to another person and, like, they were in a completely different context, whatever. Um, but often when I am creating characters, I am not sort of forging a personal relationship with them. I'm just like, this is some other person who has an opinion that I don't have or like has a perspective on things that is just truly not my own. And so it's interesting for me that uh, Hussey here is talking about all of the characters as kind of in some ways uh, like subdivisions of themselves, right? Yeah, I think this uh, this uh, I'm I'm struggling to remember where it is. I think that there's a Neil Gaiman quote mm-hmm. about the Sandman mm-hmm. that also says something to this effect. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, I I was I was giving it a quick Google, but I couldn't. I can't I can't pull it up. But I I, re- I remember reading something to this effect like ten years ago, mm-hmm. or I guess around contemporary to when this would have been written. Uh, that or not written, but you know when Homestuck was really going. Uh. Anyway, but yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, I, uh, certainly an interesting way of approaching things, and uh, we'll see where that goes, I guess. Yeah, well, I just, I wanted to bring it up, because we do see it also in this reading where, like, yeah. one of Doc Scratch's particular things is that he, like, I mean, one, Doc Scratch is echoing Hussey's words from Formspring in the comic, right? That's already there. Yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm. then, like, one of Doc Scratch's character traits is that he's horrendously smug, and right after yeah. the sequence, we get the next Hussey self-insert segment where uh the the reader is made to enter the command like about you know what's going on with all this self-insert stuff is uh tell me and please be smug about it right yeah yeah (laughs) so we see that kind of uh you know the deflationary move kind of like the the self-castigating move of uh the authorial persona there um and that's all very interesting also sort of historically because uh in the thread one of an an early conversation that happened maybe in like the first half of this reading was about the form spring uh, because at this point Hussey has restarted it like uh, Mm. they they closed down their original form spring and started another because the uh, kind of dynamic on the initial one got so I guess tetchy and confrontational uh, Mm. and 
like Hussy, from what I can tell, like has only been getting more and more form spring responses. We are not actually to the height of Homestuck's popularity yet. Uh, yeah. Yeah. According to Google Trends, it's not going to peak for maybe another one or two years. So uh, Hussy is logging into Formspring and getting lots of questions. And it seems like uh, they started out uh, wanting to, you know, answer questions and then eventually got to a point where there were maybe just so many asinine questions that they started giving really asinine answers. And so they're like, OK, I'm going to restart this Formspring. Um, we're going to, like, run it a little differently. And then as people in the thread point out, Hussy restarts the Formspring and it's exactly the same. Like, just immediately <laughs> starts, like, responding to all of the stupidest questions with, like, indignant jackass responses. Uh, mm -hmm. Which, I mean, you know, whatever, okay, but then what what just happened? Why did we restart that? And then what happens in the thread is, like, uh, people start debating, well, is the is the hussy on Formspring a persona? Like, is it the same, like, is it a fictional character? Uh, right. And is it, like, sort of the equivalent uh, of the fictional character that we see in the comic itself? And there's no answer that people come to on this, but this is all to say that, like, all this stuff we've been talking about, people are locking onto this stuff and asking those questions in real time, uh, even mm -hmm. if maybe uh, answers don't seem to be forthcoming coming yeah i mean look it's the author function mm -hmm. right i mean we, we've we've talked about this and given a theorization of it right that and what is so fascinating is that hussy has also locked onto the author function and recognizes that like a persona is a persona and it's really unclear uh, very unclear to me historically you know because that's my only access to it uh how much is that how much of it is hussy leaning in mm-hmm you know, and just being like, all right, look, this is a persona, so I'm going to treat it like a persona and do things with it, versus Hussey just can't help themselves. Right. Right. And I don't know, mm -hmm. you know, and ultimately it doesn't matter. Right. Um, you know, it, it, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter because it's kind of what is on the page or the things that I'm interested in evaluating here mm -hmm. uh, in that regard. But, um, you know, uh, going back, and maybe we can talk about, you know, the the comic yeah. <laughs> for a little while. <laughs> I know I I know I got us off on this weird and rocky road, but uh the uh I'm haunted by the fact that like a million years ago I was curious about why little Cal had a dream self. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> this this fucker just keeps showing back up. And I don't like it. I don't like when Lil Cal is around. Yeah, and this is part of what makes the comic start feeling different to me as well, I think. It's not just that these meta elements are giving the sense of, like, the machine is the machine is starting to fray, right? Uh, but this mm -hmm. is happening with, like, this sense that, oh, I mean, you know, Lord English, as Doc Scratch tells us, is already here. Uh, and it turns out that, like, Lil Cal has been in this story from the beginning, and now Lil Cal has, like, managed to go from the original story in which we first saw him and like worked his way into like this weird side story that emerged uh sort of haphazardly right like sort of the mechanics of spurb are not just uh where all this like all these predestination loops these are no longer just confined to uh, the particular game session that the players are in, uh, these are yeah. starting to like lock together across sessions, right? It's escalating in that way. And it's escalating mm -hmm. through little Cal, right? Little Cal is the thing that links these two sessions together because paradoxically he exists in the, like he exists in the universe that gives birth to the universe where we uh, were led to believe that he was initially created. <laughs> mm -hmm. Which all exists in the same time space too. Mm-hmm. Like the 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 physical <laughs> explanation, like well, like if one could draw, and I'm sure someone has, but if one drew 
the the universe of in which all of these things appear, mm-hmm. you know, or occur, uh, you would be twisting yourself in knots in order to determine who said the the most accurate thing about it. <laughs> Right, because we get, I think it's it's in this part of the episode, right, or in this reading, that we got someone being like, yeah, all of time and space, it's like a radio, right? Yes. It's like, yeah, all of time and space is like, you know, it's all one thing. Yep. Don't worry about it too much. Yep, yep, <laughs> that is a radio. <laughs> and, and sometimes that's not true, it seems like. And, and look, like, ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, the it is it is clear that, they're, uh, that these things are used, these, like, kind of mechanics are used to kind of keep the reader on their toes mm-hmm. and to generate argument and debate, like... When you, you can create the uh, immovable object and the unstoppable force, two things that are just equally true as far as we know, and see what happens, right? Uh, for example, here's a good one. Doc Scratch says, uh, I'm omniscient, except for some things I don't know, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's just some, some gaps that I don't have. Everything is pre-planned, and that's how I am omniscient, mm-hmm. right? Because we know all the outcomes of most decisions, and there's some details I don't have, but basically all the inputs, outputs are, are well-known. Except for there's this agent of chaos running around Jack Noir messing the whole thing up. And it's like, well, both of those things can't be true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't be omniscient about all outcomes, and also Jack Noir is messing everything up. That's not, right? Like, you know what the outcomes are, and you're just being a little scam, mm-hmm. maybe. Or Jack Noir really is. But it's all to say, you know, there are clearly textual uh, contradictions that get put in here that are designed to get you and me, right? Or like if you, you and I transposed historically into forum threads to be like, well, which of these is true? Mm-hmm. Where are the dream bubbles? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, these are these are the discussions that are happening, right? People trying. Of course they yeah, are. <laughs> right? People trying to work all of this out sort of bit by bit and figure out like timelines and, and so on and so forth. Right. And like and, and then like and then the speculation comes in because it's like, well, if Doc Scratch is telling the truth about this, this and this, then blah, 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 blah. However, if he's lying, then uh, here's here's a thing, a detail that I noticed that might uh, suggest that he's lying. And if he's lying, then blah, 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 blah. Right. Mm. Um, so. Uh, the other fascinating thing here is, is like people are doing uh, the thing that Scratch is telling you not to do, which is like develop an idea about this story and where it's going to go. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I just, yeah. The 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 uh, please don't think about my thing in the way that you would think about other things is like not a compelling piece of character dialogue for me. <laughs> <laughs> just on a basic level. I just can't. Uh, sorry, cannot turn off my brain that thinks about stuff. <laughs> Why, hello there, and welcome to our ad break intermission. Make yourself at home. Cameron, how are you doing? I, I've got one arm. And a club. <laughs> and I'm going <laughs> to smash you in the old head, Michael. Well, dang. That, Clonk, that's bing bong. Oh, no. Oh, no. If you... If you keep bashing me on the head, I can't tell everyone listening that uh, Homestuck Made This World is part of the Range Touch network of podcasts. Zoop. <laughs> and uh, you can find out more about us and what we do at rangetouch.com and also on twitter.com slash rangetouch. Uh, 
you can uh, oh. see all of our updates for like things that we have coming out uh, our shows like just King things uh, where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order uh, but we also have game study study buddies where Cameron and I talk about like works of academic game studies and try to make them accessible and um, if you enjoy like the parts of the show that are maybe more like theoretical or like academic oriented that's a, a, a good place to maybe put your ears for a little bit um, but if you really like the work that we're doing and you want to help us continue continue to do it if you want me to continue to have time to read 230 pages of forum posts uh to figure out what was going on 10 years ago uh you know uh financial support helps and you can offer that at patreon.com slash range touch uh this show exists because enough people wanted it that it became reality uh with their wallets and uh, if you give us a little bit of money you uh it, it all helps it all goes a long way you get some nice little prizes but uh for five dollars you'll get like just king things bonus episodes and for ten dollars you'll get the homestuck made this world bonus episodes where cameron and i have been reading things and watching things that are kind of like homestuck's intertexts and talking about how they work with with the main thing um but the other thing you can do also in addition to supporting us on patreon.com slash range touch uh is leave us reviews five-star reviews on apple podcasts or your podcast platform of choice that uh helps get eyes on us because of again all of these algorithms and if you leave a five-star review that is good and funny there is a chance that cameron will read it out loud to us on air as i am going to tell him to do now Five-star review from Gonzaga Crewman 21. I've never been more... Bless the show. Title. I've never been more validated in my decision to never engage with Homestuck than when Michael does his summaries. <laughs> uh, window Sloth. Fantastic show. Do you ever have those moments where you think to yourself, maybe today is the day I reread Homestuck? Or, you know what? I think it's time to go to grad school. Well, for me, the show provides a momentary relief from impulses like that. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Uh, oh, very excellent. Funny. Yeah, so if you leave us a review, five stars, and if it's funny and it's good, uh, uh, Cameron will read it. And um, is there anything else you want to mention uh, right now that you think nope. might be relevant? Nope. Okay. Go to patreon.com slash range touch. Uh, please give us money. I got to yep. start paying back my student loans soon. Yeah, there we go. All right. And now back to the show. Uh, well, explain a radio to me. Uh, so a radio, well, one of the big things that happens in the thread, and I had, this is another moment where I had to, in my summary, make an executive decision, uh, is people right. wondering, like, after a radio freezes Jack in the future, like, what the hell happens in that panel? I don't have the number off the top of my head. Mm, uh, where she disappears? Yeah, because it looks like she just disappears. Uh, and people are, like, arguing like in the- 3580? I'll find it for yeah. us. Um, so people are like arguing in the thread about like what happened because she's resurrected as God tier. She freezes Jack and then he like breaks out of his little like Final Fantasy style like clock spell and then she's gone. And they have to take that uh, that gif and like decompile it to show that uh, because Jack has first guardian powers from Beck. Occasionally he's like uh, flashing with like green energy and he becomes like an alpha mask in the image. So you can see yep. like whatever's behind him. Uh, so that happens for like a split second and Aradia goes through like the outline of Jack to the green sun. Oh, because she can slow down time. Yes. So that she can stretch that moment of, of uh, Jack Noir being a uh, gateway open 
for as long as she needs to get through it. It's 3566, by the way. Yes. I can definitely see that now while, uh, while when you say that. Because she gets she flips behind the, the mask, mm-hmm. basically. Right. So here's, like, uh, again, right, the, this is some interesting meta stuff in that mm-hmm. uh, we are talking about a thing that's happening in the story, but in order to kind of explain visually what is happening, we are uh, defaulting to the language of Adobe Photoshop. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Uh, but people in the thread like have to decompile this to figure out what's going on in the print book. Um, like they're printed as like separate panels. So it's much kind of clearer what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so that's like kind of the first thing that happens with Aradia. Then she's outside the green sun. She knows that she's going to have to wait on friends that are here. Aradia has like come back with all of these, you know, knowledges or something. Uh She's she's her own kind of little Doc Scratch type character in that she's a, a character who knows more about the narrative than most of the other characters and is, uh you know, doing things up to things. She goes off into the dream bubbles and we get kind of our first big like dream bubble jamboree where we, uh you know, go through the memories of everyone and like find out that Cal has, uh you know, always already been here. And this is how Doc Scratch was created and all that stuff. Um, but I think what's also really interesting is that we do get, uh, like in the, in the code that creates, uh, Doc Scratch, we get like this offshoot timeline from the alternative Aradia where Gamzee, uh, went crazy before the game was finished and killed everyone. And, uh, the Aradia bot says something to the effect that like this happened in every timeline. Like there is no timeline in which Gamzee does not start murdering everybody. Mm. Um, a universal constant of the juggalo that murders everyone. Yeah, well, it, <laughs> the, it, the proto juggalo. <laughs> well, it's very interesting, right? Because uh, one of the things that happens when uh, Gamzee does start doing this is Hussey gets a lot of questions on Formspring, being like, "This comes out of nowhere. It's completely out of keeping with Gamzee's previous characterization." Uh, like, mm-hmm. how could you take this like fun, lovable stoner goof character and turn him into a murderer? Uh, and then Hussey, like, has this moment in comic where they get to turn around and be like, and that happened in literally every possible timeline. Right? It always was going to happen because I made it do that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) that seems like, as we say, cheating. (laughs) But I accept it because it's good. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's funny in its way, (laughs) like, just the idea that this is where Gamzee is always going to go this way. And then this uh, gives us, uh, I don't know, some sense of um, uh, what we can think of as maybe like continuity of characters across various timelines that even as like the yeah. situations that these characters are going through are, are kind of like wildly divergent. And just to kind of like uh, make something clear, mm-hmm. this is not like some sort of platonic ideality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm hmm. Like some sort of core nature of the octahedral <laughs> Gamzee <laughs> that floats eternally in time and space and will always produce the same inputs and outputs no matter what material circumstances exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in stark contrast to the, the hard material world we live in. Where we could redeem a juggalo if we wanted. A a juggalo could be anything. It requires it, as Karl Marx once said, it requires the utopian imagination. Uh, You know, I I, I was about to cheat there. This is really Lukács. Lukács said (laughs) that it requires the utopian imaginary to see a juggalo in any position in all universes. (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. Yep, that's right. (laughs) It was in. I think that's in theory of the novel. 
<laughs> I read that. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm going to have to go back to Lukács, actually, probably at some point uh, yeah. for this. You should. He's good. Um, but uh, yeah, so we. He was really thinking of Juggalos way before anyone else was. <laughs> he, he was really uh, first past the post. Andrew Hussey here, stealing thunder. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we have like this this idea that uh, in all the timelines, Gamzee would have done this. Um, and to kind of make something clear that I don't think is necessarily clear if uh, you're not someone who's reading along or not someone who's deep into this. And like, as Cameron said, this is actually not terribly important, right? The, 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 the mm-hmm. thing about homestuck also is that um it uh it subsists on its own momentum right it's just kind of like barreling forward and as cameron said if something uh, is important like a eventually a character is going to explain it usually in laborious detail um and so understanding kind of the the bits and pieces of how all of these time loops lock together doesn't really matter because what is important about them is the consequences they have on like how the characters feel about themselves and their position in the world and they will be yeah. very open about how they how, about those feelings right the the whole reason for this like dream bubble thing that happens here is to get all these characters together in a room so they can talk about the dream bubble mm-hmm like that really is the output here as far as like what the story cares about. And this is quite different, you know, because we've talked a lot about the kind of like database pick and choose method, right? Mm-hmm. Of like create a bunch of options and then go back in time and choose which ones mattered. You know, that's been in, in the show or in this uh, comic since the very beginning. What's really interesting is that in the first two or three acts, you know, acts one through three, Often it would be in a big exploratory or explanatory moment of like, and here's how the game works. And here's how all the pieces that were like a part of the time travel or part of like the spatial manipulation, how those things ran into each other in order to create this output that is, you know, part of the game itself. Mm-hmm. Here it's, it is uh, th- the, uh, the mechanic, that, that same mechanical, I'm, I'm trying to think of the way to say it, that same kind of pick and choose logic exists, but it's picking and choosing not to like provide big uh, revelations for the most part. It's picking and choosing in order to give characters prompts to then just talk about the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's a, a similar process, but really different output, it feels like. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what, what I'm trying to work my way around the same. Yeah. And so we have, for instance, uh, this Aradia like the alive god tier Aradia, who has gone into the dream bubbles and uh, she enters a memory of one of her alternate selves. And one of the things to kind of like surface here that has been maybe submerged is that all of those, so Aradia had uh, a, a an army of Aradia bots at, by the end of the Trolls game. And that was one of the ways that they fought their Black King. Mm-hmm. And all of those Aradia bots uh, came from offshoot timelines. This is like a big distinction between like the trolls game versus the kids game because dave is their time travel player and he is like uh uh, you know terrified of having dead daves around like he does not want to create a bunch of uh duplicates of himself via time travel that end up getting killed because this operates on kind of donnie darko logic where uh if you travel through time like the 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 sort of like uh, space time continuum itself uh will try to kill you if you are not already part of a stable time loop that uh is part of like ongoing perpetual causality or whatever right there are no loose ends yeah, I'm, I'm playing there. You know, there are like several names for different time travel tropes mm-hmm. within science fiction fantasy stuff and not like TV trope style. But, you know, there are kind of these technical terms and uh, I, I forget what it's called. It's like a self-cleaning loop or something yeah. like that. There 
there science fiction studies has like words for these things mm-hmm. someone at one point in the form spring for this reading like asked hussy like what uh their thoughts on time travel were i think in regard to this kind of thing and mm-hmm. like obviously like wanted a very pedantic answer and hussy was just like my thoughts on time travel is that it's not real <laughs> Good, good. Yeah, <laughs> like that. that's, that's legitimately. I, I, the only better answer would have been, I don't know what time travel is. <laughs> what are what you talking that? about? <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, so, uh, Aradia having all of these Aradia bots means that there were uh, all, each of those Aradia bots came from an offshoot timeline, and so one of the implications of this whole thing, and I, I mean this strongly as an implication because it's never quite anything that I think gets like textually put in these words, but it's a it's an interpretation that shows up in the in the thread, um, is that uh, one of the reasons or like. One of the reasons this happens, one of the reasons there are so many alternate Aradias is that the trolls were constantly killing each other. Uh, and are, all of these Aradias are coming back to the main timeline to, like, avert the event that caused one of the trolls to kill each other. And so uh, the, the evidence for this is pointed out that, like, once the last remaining Aradia bot explodes when this current Aradia goes god tier, that's when she leaves the lab on the meteor. All of the other trolls are left to their own devices and immediately Aradin starts murdering everyone, as does Gamzee. Mm. So, uh, and this Aradia bot specifically says she was in a timeline where Gamzee snapped before he was supposed to for the mandate of the Alpha timeline, and she traveled back to the main timeline specifically to avert uh, that happening. So, uh, there are now, like, two Aradias in the same space... Um, who are up to a point because they share the same history, right? They both go back into their shared memory of uh, being someone or being the Aradia who uh, discovered the ruins and discovered like the remains of Lil Cal and everything. Um, But then they have become separate characters along their timelines. And now they are hanging out with each other and informing each other about what's going on. Um, And I uh, am highlighting this because it's, uh, uh, again, like we're, we're this issue of like different versions of characters it's already here we've already have it with you know dave and uh dave sprite and all this stuff um but it's going to become more and more central to homestuck as it goes on uh and i just wanted to i kind of like want to make that clear i think for especially for someone who's maybe not reading along right now that we are going to have a whole bunch of different versions of characters uh interacting with one another and we've also got like uh the return of spade slick here right like another jack noir Mm -hmm. is now wandering around some other aspect of this comic doing stuff good the best character in the whole thing (laughs) finally he returns um the uh, I I'm I'm thinking or looking through some other stuff here. Um, a lot of the notes I took are on Doc Scratch stuff that we talked about already. It is interesting that the dream bubbles and the way they work is like uh uh right. right so at the beginning of the comic we had chat logs, mm-hmm. and then we had Pester Sprite, and then we had Pester Sprite's like forums or whatever they were you mean called. Pester logs, Pester Chum, Pester logs. Yeah. What? What? Oh yeah. Pe- yes. Pester logs. But what was what was the uh, like the little forum rooms? Oh, the memos, the chat rooms, the memos. So then we had memos, which allowed people from different timelines to all talk to one another, uh, or different not I guess different people along the same timeline at different points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess we gotta be specific there. And now we have uh, dream bubbles, which allow people from completely different stories <laughs> and completely different timelines within those stories chatting with each other too. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is interesting to me that this is like uh, yet another moment of complexification of a system that we are very slowly being introduced to, you know, over the course of thousands of pages of comic at this point. And so when it happens, I was not even surprised. <laughs> I mean, we've already seen it a little bit, so maybe that's part of it, too, but not at this level of complexity. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course. Of course this would happen. Mm-hmm. Why not? Uh, and I think that is, again, something that. Uh, if you read this all in one whack over like the course of a week, you'd be like, oh, yeah, this is all just like a part of itself. You know, this is all occurring back to back. Of course, this would happen. But when you really break it apart, this is a weird thing to add into the into the comic. But it totally is of a piece with everything else. Um, and it's just creating more opportunities for more characters to talk to one another, which is now the driving force of the comic. Yeah, and to revisit what I said uh, last participle about how the dream bubbles are kind of this uh, capture of of a fandom impulse, like I think that's uh, something to think about here too. And I also want to add a little mm-hmm. bit of like depth and clarity to that. Um, uh, one way I thought of after recording that, one way I thought of putting this that I think is more clear is that uh, the 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 dream bubbles are not like obviously like explicitly fandom right like fandom is not uh like the, the or rather the dream bubbles are not just at the end of it like a a, a joke about fandom or like a, a a literal like interpolation of fandom into the story uh but they are about capturing um the the same conceptual move that fandom is doing right uh, and that happens in multiple ways. What I said last time was that uh, this is about like taking, oh, I'm watching, I'm, I'm, you know, reading this story. A character gets to a choke point or to a decision point and they make uh, their decision and the story goes on. But what happens if they did the other thing? Um, I want to write some fan fiction about them doing the other thing, right? So it's the conceptual move first off of uh, like the story going in a way that it actually didn't go. And then the second conceptual move of fandom that uh, the dream bubbles capture uh, is what you just said, which is like, what if all the characters could just hang out and talk to each other? Yeah, it's fun. So yeah, it is fun. Uh, The other thing to think about here then, and, uh, this, I think, uh, works Homestuck backward into kind of like the larger MSPA project, uh, is that this is also like this is not the first time Hussey has dealt with this kind of stuff. Uh, this was around in Problem Sleuth, uh, specifically in the paid commands. So uh, what was interesting about Problem Sleuth is that you could make a donation where you wanted the, the characters to do something differently and then Hussey would illustrate those panels. I've talked about this previously. Um, so that was like a, a, you know, a financialized version mm-hmm. of this exact same type of move. The fan wants something else to happen. Uh, the author will make their kind of like, like this weird combination of like fanfic to the main uh, home or the main Problem Sleuth story, but like actually illustrated by the artist of Problem Sleuth. Yeah. And that stuff's always getting folded in, right? I mean, didn't you tell me that's where the Midnight Crew came from? That's where the Midnight Crew came from. It's also where the Warhammer of Zillihu came from. Oh. Yeah, that was a Problem Sleuth, uh, uh, reader paid com- reader uh, paid command. Ooh. Uh, yeah, Zillihu. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Is it's it's so good. Like oh. This, oh. <laughs> What what I'm what we're not telling you again if you have not uh, read this is that when John so the Warhammer of Zillihu, uh, if you couldn't tell by the name is like this big like rainbow colored clown hammer yeah with a with um, a gentle clown goof on the mm-hmm. back of it right like a like little, where a little, war like, pick would be 
Yes, it's like a, a, a like rubber ball, like a honk honk kind of thing, with like a smiley face on it. Um, and when John gets this, uh, we get a flash animation that is just him like holding up the Warhammer and singing a Gregorian chant where he just says Warhammer of Zillihu over and over and over again. The the way you feel uh, about the Conair replication, the end of Conair scene, what is that? Is that Shania Twain? No, that's a. I think that's a Trisha Yearwood. Oh, song Trisha Yearwood. Okay, I couldn't. I couldn't remember. Uh, the the way you felt about that, and I was like, this is the worst thing. Uh, <laughs> I do feel that way about the Warhammer Zillihu. This is it. This is the good stuff. Uh, yeah, it's, it's my, so my fun. beautiful golden boy in his Warhammer. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so you know this is this is again this is classic Homestuck where we have all of this like high fantasy bullshit about the fate of universes, <laughs> and then also John is going to serenade his clown Warhammer that's been embigified by the the rabbit from Con Air, and still right. the worst narrative decision ever made by a human being <laughs> making a creative work. It gets um, worse the longer we go. Is that so? Yeah, it does. And Ow. I'm sure it's going to be infrastructural in the end somehow. Uh, it's just, it's so, it's such a clown move. <laughs> I know that Hussey is like dressing up like a clown now. And it is all a uh, runoff from the decision to implement the Con Air Bunny into the plot. <laughs> it's so bad. Um, I don't feel that strongly, but uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll see what happens with the bunny. Um the the other thing I think that is interesting about that moment is that that's a flash. We've actually gotten mm. a couple of flashes during this reading, quite a few, really. Yep. Um, which you wouldn't know historically to look at some of the response from readers because people are starting to complain about like which updates they think should be flashes and which ones aren't. Hmm. Um, and this is so one of the reasons this starts to happen is that uh, for about two years, Hussey has been updating daily with like a couple of exceptions. Right. At one point going to conventions at one point, like I think the computer broke and like an apartment flooded. So for two years, Hussey has been posting at least like five pages per day um, and at the utmost uh, posting like 12 to 15 pages per day. Uh, and and Hussey talks about like the I mentioned, I think uh, a while ago that this is when the books end, like the print books. And so there's no more future author commentary. But Hussey says at uh, the end of the book, like, you know, this it, and it ends at the moment where Terezi walks through that Resident Evil door, um, which is the point that marks the end of year two. Mm -hmm. Hussey says, uh, you know, this was like the most uh, uh, like like the 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 most uh, consistently updated uh, era of Homestuck's history, um, which is true because after this point, or rather in in this reading, uh, updates start coming maybe every other day, or every two days, and there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that Hussey starts going to a lot more conventions, um, and like convent Homestuck presence at conventions is is really on an uptick. Uh, I have gotten a. A cache of cosplay photos mm. that I'm not going to bother sending to you, Cameron, because there's a lot of them and I don't want to like drop every single one individually into discord. Um, but just there's there's lots of uh, cosplay already happening. Uh, sort of the the word about Homestuck, I think, is is really getting out. Um, so Hussey's kind of, you know, 
uh, doing that, going to conventions, meeting people, signing things. Uh, and also, uh, as they say in a lot of Formspring responses, as people start saying, uh, hey, like, are you working on something? You haven't been updating as much lately because historically in the past when Hussey was updating daily, if Hussey did not update for two days, it's because they were working on a flash. Like that was uh, nearly a guarantee. Unless Hussey came out and said, like, I'm not updating because my computer broke or something. Yeah. Like at the end of those two days, you would get a new flash update. And so every time Hussey misses an update, people are like, oh, a flash is coming. Oh, a flash is coming. Uh, and Hussey has to come out in Formspring and be like, no, like what you are perceiving as me either secretly working on flashes or in sort of the mo more vociferous vein, people saying like uh, uh, you're slacking off or whatever, uh, is just me not working on this comic 24-7. Uh, because they outline uh, their work schedule and what they were doing. And it, it appears that uh, truly, and, and they've said, they've talked about like, what is their average day like before in previous form springs, uh, where basically they uh, wake up uh, around noon or a little bit before, spend the entire afternoon into the evening working, and then post all of the uh, updates around midnight or afterward, uh, and then uh, you know do some stuff for a couple hours in like the early morning, and then go back to sleep and sleep until noon. Um, wow! And yes, right. Um, and that's a hell of a work schedule. Uh, right doing that years. every day yeah uh-huh so hussy starts doing different things now hussy does moves. the laundry <laughs> i don't know right you know you question. know what i'm saying like it, it, with that schedule you there's a lot of bit like what food did hussy eat nothing that uh, took more there, than 10 minutes to cook there's a uh one of the weird things about life is the fact that for over a decade now I've had lodged in my memory this moment of like reading some forums. Uh, actually Hussey is also on Twitter at this point. Mm. Um, maybe this is where I saw this. Uh uh Hussey tweeting at like three o'clock in the morning that they were uh grilling steaks in their backyard. Oh. Yeah, like that's dinner, I guess. Okay. Um, but this also starts to shift. So like Hussey moves again and there's a few um, no days with or a few days with no updates because of that. Um, a computer breaks, uh, gets replaced. But uh, Hussey is starting to talk sort of explicitly like I am changing how I'm living my life. I am not spending every waking hour on uh, doing this uh, like and just making the content as fast as possible. Like I'm, I'm taking a little bit. Uh, of a step back on this point, I, you know, I've adopted some cats and I want to take care of these cats. Good. Good on, good on yeah. Hussey. Right. This is all good. Uh, but this is also, I think, where uh, you start to see like some of the weird tensions with the fan base really starting to get exacerbated um, because there are people out there who are genuinely just like, why aren't you updating? You should still be updating. Like, you should be producing this content for me. Uh, and like, obviously, these people are wrong, like they are extremely wrong headed. But like, I, I am trying to sort of like do a, a bird's eye view here, right? Trying to sketch out like, uh, here is the situation. Uh, and like, what do we do with this? Right? When we think about Homestuck making this world, I think it's really interesting to realize that one of the things Hussey has been doing up until this point is basically uh, doing a human performance of what we would in maybe at this point, but in a couple of years, definitely would recognize as, like, the algorithmic timeline, 
right, of, like, constantly sort of uh, being able to produce content, like, more and more content, mm-hmm. like, kind of on demand. Uh, people are talking about, like, I haven't even mentioned this, but, like, by this point, we are we have entered the, the phase of um, MSPA notifiers. Oh, wow. So, it, like, like a Twitter account that just sees when it appears or like just not a even a website that emails you uh not even uh uh, uh browser plugins right Holy people shit. like right having rss feeds is not enough people have browser plugins to notify them uh the second and update posts to uh mspa wow right uh, so people like and, and then people tell like joking stories in the fandom of like staying up until midnight, like hitting the F5 button just in case, just in case the the update hits uh, before they go to bed. Right. And then maybe like staying up five more minutes just in case the update hits before they go to bed. Mm-hmm. Um, so people are kind of building their lives around the constant production of Homestuck panels. Mm hmm. Yes. Uh, and the. Uh, I mean, in the thread, the conversation that happens once these kind of uh, little staggered updates start happening is people being like, man, I feel really like sort of out of sorts, right? Not having a day without a Homestuck update or two days without Homestuck updates makes me feel kind of weird and antsy. Like, what the hell is going on? And someone else is like, well, you know, uh, there's this guy named Skinner. And uh, he built some boxes and he put some rats in them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, and this is done kind of jokingly, right? And all of the stuff, even the people posting on like Tumblr and like, you know, oh, I'm up F5ing. Um, this is done in a kind of self-deprecating manner, but it is exactly the kind of uh, weird like uh, content uh, lock-in um, that algorithmic timelines are going to be criticized for in the near future. Right. This this way of like uh, uh, sort of pulling like pulling people in or like constantly uh, uh, reinforcing a, a, a desire for content. And I want to be clear, I'm not saying that like Hussey was wrong to do this and it's bad and I'm like criticizing them. Hmm. Uh, it's like it's literally more like Hussey seems to have like walked backward into this dynamic it, that is going to become hugely important as an automated force over the ensuing decade. Yeah, yeah. If I, yeah, I don't think I don't in any way think I, I, you know, you're justifying it or saying that like, you know, Hussey did this on purpose. I mean, it's it's a self reinforcing cycle, right? I mean, this is exactly how like big name tweeters, <laughs> you know, for lack of a better term, how they get sucked into the algorithm too, right? Like attention and people paying attention to your work and engaging with you uh, feels good and feels bad. And produces mm-hmm. a lot of like affective stuff that um, is, you know, I, I think, I think, God, I, if, if you're hussy at this time, uh, pure speculation, but this has got to be such like a weird life moment. Because on one hand, you are one of the most popular pieces of internet media of all time. Mm-hmm. Like, no question at that point. Uh, also, you are probably uh, undergoing such an extreme amount of harassment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it is distressing at every moment, uh, right? Like, there's just no world that I could imagine that these kind of fandom uh, forces that we're talking about, like, that show up in the thread, like, demands and asks and uh, uh, displeasure about story choices and things like that. I can't imagine a world in which it's not, uh, you know, surfacing in t- as forms of harassment, even if they don't intend to be harassment sometimes, right? The mm-hmm. the request over and over again can be that. And look, you know, we make stuff that is for 
uh, a, a very limited and small audience compared to something like Homestuck. You know, like one percent of one percent of Homestuck's audience at this point. Um, you know, of of that comic's creation. And, uh, and, and still sometimes, you know, people with the best of intentions send us messages occasionally. And I'm like, the, I don't, I do not enjoy hearing this, this content that you have distributed to me. Right. And sometimes it's positive And I'm like, I just don't, I don't have time for this. And also you don't mean this to be insulting, but it is. And so mm-hmm. if, uh, you know, when the volume of that is up by 30% or not 30%, but 30 times, right. Or a hundred times. I could totally understand it. I could totally understand like any and every coping mechanism that you have. And I think something that's a real, um, probably a problem at that moment in time is that I have a lot of people to look to and to talk to who have undergone, you know, many different forms of uh, uh, online harassment, whether it's uh, offensive over familiarity all the way to death threats, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've I've received also all of those too, right? But mm-hmm. uh, certainly not at the volume that many of uh, you know our friends and colleagues have. Um, and so there are those there are people for like me to talk to, you know, if I'm feeling mm-hmm. away about it, or you know, I can talk to you, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Who who's hussy got right? Like yeah. who in that in that cadre of people? Like everyone else who's of a similar level of fame or int- or you know kind of movement. You know, I'm thinking of someone who at the same time I would have been reading. Uh, really regularly, regularly like Casey Green. Well, Casey Green is not doing the same thing. There's no universe of expectation for Casey Green. You know, is Anime Club happening at this time? Like, who's reading yes. Anime Club? And they're like, I need Anime Club to resolve my fandom, <laughs> right? Like, because that's not what that work is. It's not the relationship that that work is built with an audience. And so, like, you know, any kind of criticism or any kind of comment that we make about, like, Hussey's uh, authorial figure in the way that they engage with things or whatever, please know that I'm always considering like the re- the the way that that's shaped, which is against a con- uh, a context in which I would not be e- equipped to handle. I would simply mm-hmm. have turned Homestuck off and not done it anymore um, if I received the kind of feedback that Hussey did, positive and negative, to be frank. <laughs> Uh, yes, truly. Uh, like the, the the one way of describing the situation Hussies ended up in is that like they are the main character of the day every day on multiple websites for a million people. Yes. Yeah, it's I just I don't I don't envy their position. They made a work that did that, right? Like it's it's just this like trap, right? You made a work yes. that resonated with so many people and yet at the end of the day you're the person who's having to like you know, turn the crank, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, to make the machine go. And when the machine stops, people get mad cuz they like the machine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> um, I got I got huge empathy. I got huge imp- empathy for anyone who makes something that has like a fandom of more than I don't know 20,000 people. Uh, that mm-hmm. sounds like a real, uh, like emotional roller coaster where you would need to create some very strong controls around what you saw. And I think there's one thing that I can historically reconstruct about Hussey. They can't do that, mm-hmm. at least at this point. And then like uh, uh, 10 years later, someone will make a, an extremely fine-grained analysis <laughs> show <laughs> of every move and moment and uh, supposed mistake and supposed triumph. And then we'll compare them all to one another in excruciating detail. <laughs> Just to put up, bing, bing. You know. uh, yeah, because uh, we've actually, we've gotten a couple people who have been like, oh my God, you know, uh, I can't believe that they're talking about my work that I made. 12 years ago on this show, you know, we've gotten pinged with that kind of thing uh, Mm -hmm. every now and again. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you made, you made work and it was, I think generally we've only talked about stuff that we liked, 
or you liked. Yeah. I, I don't really. I guess I like the <laughs> club. <laughs> bring it, bring it in all your, <laughs> yeah, all your favorites. Um, yeah, uh, the it, it is weird because you're correct, right? Hussey so uh, has moved to uh, Western Massachusetts, um, which is at this point where uh, kind of the Topedo Coast circle of webcomic artists is hanging out, of which uh, Casey Green is a part. Uh, and so there is this way in which. Uh, Hussey is simultaneously of a class with all of these uh, webcomic artists, but has like uh, broken the form of the webcomic in such a way that there is no real comparison to other people uh, in terms of like what they're doing or kind of like the, the sorts of feedback that they would be facing at this moment. The other thing I guess that we should maybe talk about just a little bit uh is like some of the other information we get from Doc Scratch, uh, particularly on like the God tier stuff uh, about how immortality works. <laughs> yeah, what a what a goofy thing. It like, is. It is. <laughs> I did. I wrote sorry. that in my notes. This is goofy. <laughs> it is so goofy, and people are going to take it so seriously, Cameron. In the sense like, of like, uh, because what does he say? It's a. Uh, that if someone has ascended to God tier, they they are functionally immortal unless they die in a heroic or uh, ju justice way or something. I forget. Yeah, a heroic one. or just fashion. Just yeah. fashion. Okay. Yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> I, I guess uh, in retrospect, you probably would not say the phrase justice way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and so so that means that I don't know. People can die in cool ways, but they just come right back to life. Uh, I mean, if it's too cool, then it sticks, right? Oh. Like, this is what I think is really fascinating about uh, the god tier immortality mechanic. Uh, and, like, notably, right, we just saw John get stabbed through the chest. Hmm. He's coming right back. Right? Like, I wonder what's going to happen there. But people are like, oh, no, John is dead again. But then other people have to come in and be like, listen, Scratch just explained that there's an immortality clause here. Uh, uh, it only sticks if you die in a heroic or a justified way. Yeah. Like, John got ganked. Like, <laughs> yeah, obliterates the stakes, by the way. Like, mm -hmm. uh, absolutely annihilates it. And I understand why you would do it, because it does allow you to create all kinds of, like, interesting scenes of people killing one another in this comic book about teenagers. But, mm -hmm. uh, the, but yeah, it, it, like, if I had not read that, I would be like, oh my God, John got killed. But in this yeah. point, I was like, yeah, John, he's coming right back. He'll be fine. He's a god. Mm -hmm. He wears clown pants. By the way, hold on, I gotta ask this question. Why is everyone who is a god wear a goofy hat and clown pants? Well, they're pajamas, Cameron. Is it because they died on a dream bed? Yep. That's that's also goofy. Why? Mm -hmm. it, look, we, I feel we, I have a sneaking suspicion, having looked at some pages about that Starlight Calliope or whatever, that Hussy might just like drawing clowns. <laughs> and people <laughs> in clown clothes. <laughs> uh people people love these uh the, the implication of these like god tier pajama outfits uh there's a piece of like people are doing their head cannons now for all the different types of uh you know aspects and classes as they may exist going to drop this in the channel for mm -hmm. you uh yeah a whole here... a whole comic of people wearing full pants ankle length skirts and then big flowing hammer pants Mm -hmm. Like, there's a real lack of diversity of clothing options in both Alternia and in Homestuck Land. <laughs> uh, yeah, so here, like, I just uh, sent you an image. This is, like, uh, an image of someone made of all of the trolls if they went god tier. Um, like, this is sort of, like, you know, speculation about what all of their various outfits might look like. This is a thing people love, like, sort of some mm -hmm. of the blanks that people love to fill in. Do they all have butterfly wings because they were grubs? 
Yes. The so trolls get butterfly wings when they mm. ascend to god tier, uh, because uh, certain trolls too, like adult trolls, grow wings. Uh, the summoner Tavros's ancestor is notable for being a, a troll who is flying around with wings mm-hmm. uh, because he's basically like you know Alternian Peter Pan, except he leads yeah. a rebellion against the government. Got it. But grubs um, don't turn into butterflies. No, but like whatever. In, in the real world. In the real world. Uh-huh. Okay, just making sure everyone knows that. Yeah. Grubs turn into like. <laughs> flies <laughs> <laughs> and i guess equius uh, here does have uh he's got fly wings it looks like so maybe just oh, wingedness oh, yeah. um oh and uh uh solix has uh uh what do you call it um uh like dragonfly wings so okay there's mm-hmm. a diversity of wing types here i accept it yeah okay various types of bugs yeah um, but what I think is really fascinating about uh, the god tier stuff is that, well, one, it does what you just said, which is that in some ways it totally eliminates the stakes because characters can die like every single page and just pop back mm-hmm. as long as and this is the other thing, as long as the situation in which they died uh, was uh, not sufficiently dramatic, essentially. Um, in other words, God tier is a way of like narratively instilling uh, in characters what TV tropes calls plot armor. Like this character simply can't die unless uh, the moment is of like so such sufficiently high drama of, or high stakes. Right. If the character is trying to do something really important, that's a time when a character might, in fact, actually risk death. The effect of this and we're going to see this play out uh in many ways, the effect of this is that anytime a character dies, uh, it means people in the in the fandom start debating: was that a heroic or just death? Here is my argument for or against. Right? It it it's a a, a little um, spur to more discourse because you'll have a character who gets killed in this case, John, and then we have some days that pass and people start thinking like, well, I don't know, we haven't seen John since he died. Maybe there was something just about what happened, blah, 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 blah. So um, in the same way that like Vriska is kind of a character who is designed to get you to argue on forums, uh, the God tier immortality stuff is, is, is a similar move, right? Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. it's to get you to talk to other people who are reading this and maybe argue with them about like narrative events. Yes. Interesting. Um, the other thing that's interesting is the idea of a scratch that is a complete reset of the game. This is a thing that really uh, throws people for a loop because the, the other thing to note about Doc Scratch and when he's talking to Rose is he clarifies all this. He's like, no, it's going to reset the session. And she's like, I thought that the scratch was going to open a rift or like something that was going to send Jack Noir to the troll session, which is what the fandom thought was going uh, to happen. Okay. Right. So she is specifically like the, the assumptions she has or the ideas she has are here like being uh, squared with what the fandom believes. And then Doc Scratch as this author figure comes in and says, no, you made that assumption. Here's what's actually going to happen. The entire game is going to be reset uh, and you will have re- like you will be obliterated as the person you currently are and you will uh, then live an entirely different life. This is uh, another like fandom move. This is another thing that kind of uh, it's it's not something that gets uh, incorporated precisely into uh, the dream bubbles uh, because the dream bubbles are always kind of forking off of like the main timeline. Uh, The scratch as this full reset instead taps into what I've talked about earlier as like, what if all the kids were trolls? 
What if all the mm -hmm. trolls were kids? What if all the trolls had different blood types and so on and so forth? Um, and so just a, you know, that's another genre of fan art. And I'll just drop one of these in here, but I have a whole set. Uh, here's like, for instance, some fan art uh, by someone named, oh no, did I write down their name? I had it. Oh yeah, Bucket Mouse. This is by an artist named Bucket Mouse, oh. and this is Jade Strider, the Witch of Time. So this is like, what if, and this predates the Scratch being announced, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this is a genre or little subgenre of fan creation is like, what if the kids had their places switched? What if uh, Jade was raised by Bro and uh, the other people we have here, just to, to square this out, we have Dave Lalonde, the Knight of Time, or the Knight of Light, I should say, uh, Rose Egbert, the Seer of Breath. Um, this is actually, I'm going to show you this one just because <laughs> this is such a, this is such a not Rose who she is, right? This is such an alternative Rose. What uh, because name? she, oh, this is Rose Egg. Oh, got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. This is also very much like a, uh, like, uh, cover of an anime. Mm -hmm. from 1998 this is like i learned how to draw anime from one of those how to draw anime or how to draw manga books yeah and i read I mean, a lot of those in middle school so like shout out to you whoever you are who made that <laughs> i mean yeah and there's all sorts of i mean here's here's some also other like swaps TV, this is like final fantasy 7 proportions yes like head head little too big feet little mm -hmm. too big it's very much that specific type of like anime manga style yeah uh in another style these are good uh, here Here's the artist Imlun, who did uh, some really cool, like, this is what the trolls would look like if they were humans. Oh, cool. Right? Oh, uh, and then there... <laughs> Games is just a juggalo. Yep, just, <laughs> just a juggalo. Just a straight up juggalo. <laughs> and then uh, Imlun's companion piece, which is, uh, here is what the kids would look like if they were trolls. Uh, now, well, I got a little bit of a question here. Uh, yeah. Is this Vriska in the middle? Yes, that uh, in the the sort of like yeah. flannel shirt and yeah. everything. She's yeah. like got the two dice that she's tossing up. Yeah, I don't I don't know about these interpretations. Also, this is all very Final Fantasy VIII. Who made this? Uh, this is an artist uh, whose handle uh, it, I don't know what they go by now, mm -hmm. but like as the as they show up in the thread, Imlin. Also, I should clarify. Well, Imlin, something. Imlin, let me know if you're if you're still around. Would love to have you do a shirt for us. <laughs> so, if anyone has the contact info for Imlin. Uh, and you can still draw in the style that you drew in 10 years ago. <laughs> Hit us up. <laughs> okay. Cause like, these are great. If you're listening, we'll, we'll do some, I'll do some digging and see if I can uh, find. So, I am positive that contacts. someone who listened to this show has contact info for this person. So please help mm -hmm. us out. Anyway, sorry, you were saying. Oh, uh, what, what the hell was I saying? Oh, so, uh, obviously I'm still reading the thread. Um, for this reading, I read 196 pages of the thread. Holy shit. And that's like and 50 also, posts for thread or something? Uh, 40, yeah. 40, okay. So about halfway through this thread, uh, the mods get tired of everyone posting fan art. And so they make they, they allow the creation of a uh, Homestuck fan art thread and post your favorite. I had forgotten about this. So now I'm reading two threads. And so I read like 38 pages of the fan art thread. Um, that's easier, obviously, because it's just looking at a bunch of cool images. Uh, but that just means I have I have so much more fan art now than I did before because I have all of the I have this dedicated space. Uh, just some other cool stuff that shows up. There's an artist named Ketty uh, who has an AU. I'm, I'm, this is purely selfish for me. Uh, mm -hmm. Ketty has an AU called Greasebound that is like, what if all the trolls were 1950s teenagers? 
um, uh, which I just think is very cute. But also, uh, Ketty has maybe what are I think my favorite uh, like fan designs for the trolls. Like I just I just love this style. Um, yeah, very. Um, uh, the I guess the flat no line art. This is this mm-hmm. is kind of an early emergence of that style. I don't I don't yes. I don't feel like this kind of flats flats only like heavily what I associate with Tumblr style. I feel like that didn't come in like into full force until like 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, these are good. Yeah, these, these are, are good. Great. And you I, could, I you could make a you, this could be some sort of comic yeah. <laughs> or, <laughs> or animated show. Yeah, and I mostly I, I wanted to point that out because again I really love these troll designs and also it would be uh, given given our uh, you know status uh, re greasers with just king yeah. things yeah. I, I need to point out that there are greasers in the Homestuck fandom uh, in particular for this AU uh, it is Equius Aridan and Gamzy mm-hmm. are are the greasers and they're all uh, evil yeah <laughs> they're the most evil of the evil trolls yes they're the most murderous trolls they're the greasers. Uh, Solix has eyeballs here. Yeah, he does. I mean, Solix uh, uh, does have eyeballs canonically. They're just like weird psychic flashing eyeballs. Oh, I thought, weren't they destroyed recently? Well, yes, in the comic, but this is an AU, Cameron. Oh, oh I see. All right. Right? All right. Like, they don't they don't show all the wounds that they get in the main I got, story. I got, I got it. I'm the asshole. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> um. So uh, anyway, right, this is all 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 of this uh, is to just come back around to this idea of the scratch as being like this full reset of the game. Uh, Again, this is a way that uh, Homestuck is kind of like recapturing the moves that fandom makes Mm -hmm. with regard to uh, the object that fandom is kind of like orbiting around. Um, And this is, I think, you know, one of the one of the secrets to Homestuck being such a huge thing in its moment and for generating such close connections is that essentially Homestuck imitates its fans Mm -hmm. right like homestuck will often do on like the level of narrative what the fans are doing to the narrative on the level of their individual or sort of like collective imaginations yeah yeah there there's no no meta thing that will not be folded back into it Mm -hmm. um just some other historical notes here. Uh, the the independent Watt Pumpkin sc- store finally wa- uh, launches. Jesus Christ, I'm going to try saying that sentence again. <laughs> the independent Watt Pumpkin store finally launches on its own. Um, people start trading fan fiction recommendations in the thread. They're like linking to archive of our own. Uh, so we got Tumblr last time. Now we've got AO3. Uh, immediately, uh, there's like a huge blowba- blowback of people being like, stop posting fan fiction in the thread. And then it continues to happen. Um, oh, there was a discussion in our Discord channel the other day uh, about uh, Aridin's turn toward like fascism, like overt fascism. Mm-hmm. And how this uh, historically really like threw people for a loop. They were like, oh, shit, like he's actually like going to do some genocides uh, or like he really wants to do some genocides. Right. That's a sincere part of his character we're supposed to apprehend. Um, and we there was a long discussion in our discord about, um, you know, well, what? How did that happen? Uh, and the answer is uh, 10 years is a very long time. Uh, and, uh, what people who were kind of around earlier on in like Homestuck's life were, were saying is like, you know, in 2011, like you, you had like the fantasy racist was like just a character type, 
Yeah. Like you didn't necessarily approach that with kind of judge judgment or anything. Now, that's not to say there weren't people who were doing that. But in terms of like cultural attitude, uh, and so someone said, you know, like, well, Aridin is really he makes a lot of sense if you just realize he's an incel. And, you know, it's like, well, incels aren't going to happen for another five years. Yeah. Or we will not recognize them as the subtype. They were they were understood to be a different like uh, genre. Right. Mm -hmm. They were like the nice guy uh, or yes. like the Ian guy. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, there were there were some people who were just kind of shocked. And I, I think they were kind of younger people who were kind of shocked that like there was a point in the not too uh, distant past where uh, a character in a piece of fiction could come in and be like, hey, there, I'm a fascist. And no one would really blink at that um, because we live in such a, a different time at the moment. And like, you know, fascism has a very different relevance now for, for our uh, current political situation. Um, and uh, I was participating in this conversation, trying to provide some of this context. And then, of course, the next day, I found the thing that would have like resolved the conversation entirely by showing this is how we thought about these people. Um, it is a fan video of uh, Aridin set to uh, the final song from Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. Uh, where he like he, he like doc, like this is a Joss Whedon thing. It was like a web series, and Neil Patrick Harris plays basically like the supervillain, right? A mad scientist uh, who is kind of a mid tier villain, uh, but he meets a girl that he kind of likes, and then he gets denied her because she like gets fridged, and then that is like his turn to like full evilness, and he like ascends to like the premacy of supervillains, and he has this big empowering song about that. Uh, and like it's all you know Joss Whedon right bracket that put that aside and we can think about like all of that subtext but like uh, as this as uh, Dr. Horrible was received it was like yeah this is just like a funny little story about like what if superheroes were real and we shouldn't take this too seriously as like a song celebrating a uh, like fascists full heel turn in his ascent to power right uh, and the fact that we have that kind of character who is so readily kind of uh, combined with Aridin I think provides a, a really good sense for just like where we were in the pop culture landscape at that point Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, you know, repo the genetic opera. <laughs> That's like a little bit after this, I think. But uh, oh yeah, god, I hate. I that. mean, we just had a, a different relationship with like the. Uh, I I think what what we have to recognize is that there was in two thousand five to twenty, basically twenty fourteen. I would say there was this kind of ascendant cultural moment of the nerd. You know, the Marvel mm -hmm. Cinematic Universe is a big part of that. J.J. Uh, Abrams is a big part of that. Uh, all of these, like, retro nonsense throwback things like Ghostbusters Afterlife and all of that, the, you know, Stranger Things, these are all a part of that general circuit, which is, you know, I, I think uh, quite often about, I, I was in a mo I, I, I was at a press day for a D&D &D event, and a very prominent celebrity who plays D&D, &D, and there are a million of them, so that doesn't narrow this down in any way. <laughs> but uh, he was just talking about... Uh, um, he was talking about D&D, &D, uh, and, you know, D&D 5th Edition, obviously big deal now, all that kind of stuff. And he said, you know, we... Uh, the people... I, I forget the, the noun he used, but maybe it was we... But mm -hmm. we have never really apologized to D&D &D for what happened in the 80s and 90s. <laughs> right. The kind of cultural mm -hmm. right wing turn that all that stuff, satanic panic, that kind of thing. 
And, you know, at the, I didn't have an opportunity at the time to, like, r- you know, raise my hand and say, oh, good sir, uh, but did you know <laughs> your word choice? You know, I didn't do that, right? But I, I was like, what? what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? This is, like, the, the most ascendant cultural, you know, D&D prints money. Mm-hmm. You are, uh, you, part of your career is based on this thing that prints money. What apology is needed? Right. <laughs> you thought you needed to make this money before? Like, I don't, you know, I don't know what to, like, history happens, but I don't know what to tell you, right? But but that's all to say that there is a, a long cultural hangover from the 80s and 90s of nerd culture becoming more centralized and people having a chip on their shoulder about it, but also creating characters who are sympathetic nerds working their shit out. Mm-hmm. And I, I it, at that time, especially this kind of Aridan thing, it's like, Oh, someone who feels a little bit alienated, even though that they theoretically are at the top of their game in their culture, you know, like he's, he's mm-hmm. a supremacist, whatever, all that kind of stuff. Oh, but he still has an emotional core to him. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Homestuck books the trend in some ways by saying, well, actually, if you play that out, he becomes a genocidal fascist, right? Like, right. just straight up. Whereas for the most part, that character type as it goes, the like nice guy who is like, just can't put it all together because there is some sort of uh, external factor that's preventing him from doing so because he's a big old nerd. You know, he's, he's the special golden Harry Potter boy. I mean, think of Harry Potter, too. That's what that mm-hmm. is. Uh, like, you know, this this person who is somehow marginalized in right. uh, a circumstance <laughs> that would never produce in the real world any kind of marginalization. And yet he feels that way, right? It's so fascinating, right? How uh, we've talked about Alan Moore before in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen (laughs) and how uh, Homestuck and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen both end with Harry Potter in the same place, right? (laughs) Yes. Like, this is fascist genocide. Yes. Oh, yeah. No, Alan Moore, uh, look, there's a lot of issues with League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I would never apologize for any of them. You just have to kind of take, much like Homestuck, you just have to analyze them as they are. I don't think you Mm -hmm. can talk your way out of them. Uh, but good golly, <laughs> like he, he really like, you know, looked, looked Harry Potter in the eye and, and really figured out what he thought of that. But, mm-hmm. and ultimately I think was very accurate in, in what was going on. But that's all to say, right. That before we had the kind of genre of the incel that we then, uh, determined that, you know, this is where this person belongs in our kind of cultural dialogue, which maybe is accurate, maybe is inaccurate. I don't quite know. Uh, you know, that's maybe not the place of a podcast that drive by talks about it. Uh, mm-hmm. To determine, but uh, this the the Aridin figure was that figure beforehand. Before we had mm-hmm. the terminology of the incel and the kind of culture of understanding what that maybe meant and the kind of animus that is so, that was associated with that and this kind of narrative of um, cultural exclusion and uh, violent desire uh, mm-hmm. that comes out of that. Before that, there was Aridin um, mm-hmm. and and this type of like ascendant nerd. And in the incel, I, I, I guess, sorry, I guess the, the final thing to say about that is that what happens when the nerds win, right? When mm-hmm. the nerds become the monoculture fully and completely to the point where you cannot turn your head without seeing some for, sort of form of 1980s throwback thing that we have to engage with because it's all of our culture now. Um, at that point, what what we realize is that the uh, the people who are expressing violent fantasies or the people who are engaged in some of the most uh, destructive parts of that nerd culture were not merely just alienated nerds. In fact, those Mm -hmm. things are not uh, wholly, you know, there was a subtype of person even within that 
and the subtype of person uh, is harboring, you know, these kinds of feelings of, of fascism, of a deserved place that is displaced, of misogyny, all these different things. And that was not just like, oh, golly gee whiz, people don't take Ghostbusters seriously or Star Trek seriously enough anymore. Uh, it mm-hmm. was a different thing that just happened mm-hmm. to coincide with, uh, you know, uh, someone who loves Spider-Man too much. Sometimes. <laughs> Uh, uh, speaking of nerd things, yep. uh, something that I think people will like uh, uh, ask me about or like ask us about, like we didn't talk about this if we didn't mention it. Um, so these meta elements, Terezi like gets to the end of Homestuck the disc. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, remember when when games came on discs, kids, yeah, uh, even and, and even at even at this point, right, it, it feels a little bit like a throwback, like historically of uh, like multiple disc Final Fantasy games. So Terezi gets to the end of the disc, can't find the second one and then falls into like this weird room uh, underneath the meteor that, uh, as I believe the narrative puts it, you wouldn't expect to find here in any strictly canonical capacity. Uh, that room that she falls into where it's like uh, a sort of like it's where Gamzee's obviously made some sort of lair because there's all these like torn up plushies and like a bunch of clown horns hanging around. And mm-hmm. also he's like flash stepping, right? Gamzee's like gone full evil and he's now got a uh, little cow beside him. So I'm sure that's going to work out well. Uh, but that's the song that plays there uh, is a remix of a Secret of Mana song. And that uh, in, I am pretty sure, is from Secret of Mana. And it appeared in an earlier walk around Flash as a debug room. Uh, and so one of the things that I don't think I've actually brought up uh, about these walkarounds is that people are constantly trying to find the debug rooms, which are usually have a whole bunch of Easter eggs hidden in them. And so this is a thing that has appeared previously uh, as just like a debug room, right? It was like a little extra thing in the Flash. And now within the main story, uh, a character, actually multiple characters have wandered into it, right? A thing that was not supposed to like literally exist. And so uh, this escalation of meta elements also sees a bunch of readers who are kind of like checking out or like saying that they do not like how how meta things are getting, Um and I just want to like sort of like, I guess, highlight that uh, because uh, it's it's a strange move, right, to, to suddenly pull in a like true, like a truly meta element in kind of like a, a almost a bigger sense. Right. It would almost it would it could only be like more bizarre if Terezi like fell into an HTML readout or something. Right. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. It, it's like a, a sort of thing that existed on a technical level has been brought to the level of narrative. Um, and uh, we're I mean, this is also aligned, of course, with like the the images starting to like glitch out and stuff because of the the scratched uh, disc. So uh, all of that to, to keep in mind as we continue forward and, and figure out what Doc Scratch is going to do with us uh, and uh, help us to finish this story. Wowie. Mm-hmm. I think that's it. Yeah, I guess that maybe uh, gets us to the end of things for for this episode. Uh, For next time, then, uh, on Homestuck Made This World, we will continue episode six with episode six, part two. Uh, And you should read, dear listener, uh, up through page uh, 3936. And now listen carefully. Read up to page 3936, but do not... And I know the temptation will be very great for you. You want to you want to have that delicious candy. Do not click the panels. We will stop on that page and we will click the panels 
afterward. Okay. That'll make sense when you get there. Don't worry. Okay. I believe it. 